is going to be a very special episode, Dave. Yep. Yep. Why is that? Well, I don't know about you, but I slept about an hour last night um, because my son is uh, so vigorous and full of life. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I, I think we've talked about this before. I didn't take it anywhere near as bad as uh, as my wife did, but uh, I still did not sleep that great. Um, and uh, and I think you're also addled, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have all your sleep right now because um, <laughs> thanks to uh, NyQuil. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so this is going to be very special, so people can see whether uh, who is more lucid on this episode, um, uh, um, sleep uh, de- deprived you or uh, drug enhanced me. So we'll, we'll find out. It's, just, it's like the world's worst superheroes. Um, <laughs> Superpowers, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so, well, having some bedtime is not so bad for you though, because you recently got a Chromebook, right? Um, in many ways, yes, I have. Um, so it's like I, I saw, you know, it's a, it's one of those things that you, you have on your mind. It's like, oh, I want to try one of these things out. And then it, it wound up like the price was right. And it's like, all right, I'm going to try it. Let's see what it's all about. And if, if I don't like it, I'll just I'll sell it or whatever. So um, I found there's like a, a group on uh, promotion had one. And I, I think it's still going now where it, it's like 129 bucks for um, a uh, – uh, Acer C720, which is like one of the you know uh, most popular Chromebooks that are out there. So it's like, yeah, I'll try it out. We'll see how it goes. And uh, I got it, and I was really impressed with it. Um, it's like a nine nine hour battery life. Uh, it boots like from like power off to fully you know ready to log in in like seven seconds. And and you know the the other th- cool thing is you know one of the things the reasons why I was looking at getting it was for um, my wife's laptop died and it's like, well, you know, should I get another laptop that I got to be updating all the time? Or, um, you know, maybe we try out a Chromebook and, you know, cause she's been, uh, I got her a tablet and she's getting into that. But if we could, you know, let all the software sort of automatically update and, and, you know, all the stuff is backed up in the, the cloud and, um, it'll, uh, lighten my system administration burden as the number of devices in our house proliferate. So, mm-hmm. um, she got a hold of it and she, she can't keep her hands off of it. So I'm, I'm like kind of jealous. Um, oh, so wow. that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, it's one of those things that's like, I, I gave it to her and I'm like, she's going to hate it. I know she's going to hate it. And, <laughs> and she really likes it. Um, you know, the screen is, uh, like 1366 by 768. So it's very much like the X230 that I have. Um, and like the OS is very <clears throat> like, uh, I would say like windows, seven-ish, you know, as far as, um, you know, the, the start menu sort of thing and, and, um, which is very different from windows eight, which I, I still, I curse every time I use it. I hate it. Um, and the other thing is like for like 129 bucks, uh, you know, it includes a uh, hundred gigs of Google drive storage for two years. So you think about that, that's about $96 right there. Um, and then it also includes 12, uh, go, go Wi-Fi internet passes, which I think are tied to that device, but what those are, what about 15 bucks a pop, uh, sometimes. And so it, you know, it's like for that stuff alone, it sort of like pays for itself. Uh, so I, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, but there were some things that, that I didn't like about it. Um, so things like you, you have to, and, and this may be for people that are using Macs, um, not a big deal where, um, like you guys, uh, Mac users don't have like a uh, mouse buttons or uh, like on the touchpad. 
Um, this doesn't. So is like getting used to that and, and like multi-touch gestures with the touchpad. But once you, you get that, that's kind of okay. Um, but then the other part of it is like, uh, it only has like two USB ports. So if you wanted to, <clears throat> you know, you're always plugging devices in to charge things and stuff. So you, you might be limited there. Um, and then there were two other things that were, I would think for more general purpose use as a laptop replacement would be holding people back. And, and one of them is that the output is HDMI only. So, um, you know, if you wanted to like use it in a you know, corporate setting where you want to plug into somebody's projector and do a presentation, you got to hope that they have an HDMI connector for the projector. Right, right. Which is actually, I, I like this new trend of uh, more and more computers are coming out with kind of HDMI only support. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I will be very glad when we get rid of these VGA devices. Um, oh, HDMI yeah. It's just, I mean, so it kind of hastened. I like to think that having these HDMI only devices is kind of kind of hasten the uh, the death of VGA. That'd be nice. No, um, um, yeah, I, I like that. How is the uh, how's the offline performance on it? Have you been able to play with that at all? Yeah. So really, I mean, like. There's not too much, like for me, what I want to use it for or my wife wants to use it for is like, well, it's it's looking at your RSS feed or uh, reader or, or things like that. So you're typically connected to a network anyhow. What was kind of weird is that instead of having multiple windows and um, and you you have like a window tray down at the bottom like you do for windows or, or like with RHEL, how you have like an icon for every window, um, mm -hmm. every, every app that you run is actually a browser tab. Um, which makes sense once you think about it and get used to it. So that that wasn't that wasn't bad at all. Um, but one one of the things that's like uh, I, I think that needs a, a lot of work again from a, a laptop replacement standpoint is um, that you can't like connect it to a printer unless it is like Google Cloud Print enabled printer. So it's like only like a handful of printers are capable of doing this. So I have. You know, a couple network printers, you know, throughout the house that just won't work with this. And the only way that I could print from the Chromebook, um, I either have to own one of those cloud print enabled printers, or I have to have a laptop that is booted up that is running Chrome that would act as like a print server proxy. So I would I would basically print from the Chromebook up to Google. That would get sent down to my laptop running Windows or Mac OS or Linux. Um, and and so that has to be booted up. I have to be logged in. I have to have Chrome running. And then it will spool the print job from there, which to me is like crazy. Um, and so I think that's going to limit it. Um, but one thing that I found is that you could actually set up, uh, you could actually have a Raspberry Pi serve that job. So that, that may be a... Uh, Another no weekend project. project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, you know, I would still love to just like, come on, guys. Cups is around. I mean, how hard could that be to get cups to work on there? Um, <laughs> but, you know, I would, I would, uh, you know, but it's like that that would be an okay sort of compromise. But the whole goal of the Chromebook is having stuff that I don't have to update and, you know, leave around and worry about powering on or, you know, I want to be able to like go on travel and then have the, um, have everything work um yeah so, yeah sure yeah. sure oh that's great yeah that's great that's exciting and then with all the credits for google drive and for the go go passes that they give you that's basically mm -hmm. like it makes the lab it makes it basically free right if you were to oh, yeah. use all the yeah oh, that's great cool that's wonderful i also got a new toy yeah um, it's a 
it's and I've actually been on video conferences all week and people are giving me no end of crap about it. Uh, it is, <laughs> it's this, it's this absurdly, uh, over-engineered microphone, which I'm speaking to you through right now. Um, yeah, I can so hear if it. I say, if I sound richer, if I sound, uh, more authoritative, uh, it's because I've got this, uh, this sweet, like radio guy microphone. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, the road podcaster is what it is. And, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's great. It's a wonderful device. Um, I'm very, very happy with it. Nice. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what do we got on tap for this episode? So, uh, so here's what we got lined up. Uh, and Dave, uh, you tell me if you can sense a theme, uh, mm-hmm. in the, in the teasers this week. Um, so there's the, uh, GSA 18F, the OMB USDS OSS LOL BBQ. Uh, there's the rel SSG, the rel VPAT KVM, the EAPGA and the IBM and BRMS thing. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So this is, so this episode is specially encoded for the <laughs> vanishingly slim intersection of government geeks and technology geeks. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. So and actually we got some, we do have some great content. Um, content listen to me i sound like a marketer um what's a what's anyway what's on the cutting get, room floor to, dave yeah, get me out of oh, here well, what's what's on the cutting room floor yeah um so uh we got a better butter knife we have a better open source project websites and a better refereeing of philosophy arguments uh infographic now is that, that i think it was you that said that's been floating around but you sent it to me um i really enjoyed this it's like I don't know. Can you describe it to folks? This is... Yeah, it's basically it's an uh, you could think of it as an infographic of like uh, drawings of NFL referees uh, that are refereeing uh, philosophical debates. So so whenever you go to those debates, you see the referee and you see you can understand the hand signals whenever they, they call somebody out. Yeah, my favorite was your argument is irrelevant uh, and it's the uh, incomplete uh, it's the no completion signal. It's like yeah. two, two crossed arms waving in front of each other. It's, it's pretty great. So if people wanted to see that, that, uh, infographic and print it out just in time for uh, football season, where do we need to send them Gunner? Yeah. So they can go to uh dgshow.org. Uh, that's D as in Dave, G as in Gunner show.org. Nice. Nice. Yeah. All right. So what's in, uh, what's in follow up this week? Yeah, so I saw a couple things, and uh, it made me think of our uh, friend of the show, Adam Clater. Um, there's uh, there are two things that are, that are that I saw. One is uh, Star Trek Phase Two, which is another fan effort of of uh, you know we talked about was it um, uh, there's another Star Trek uh, Star Trek Continues, which I thought was great. Um, and then the Star Trek Phase Two is another. It's like a whole series of of uh, that's that's taken off. That uh, they reenact people being Spurk, uh, Spurk, uh, Spock and Kirk and, and all those guys. Um, but then there was another one that came out that looks like a major production. Um, it's called Star Trek Exanar, which is totally independent of like Paramount and all the people that own it. But this looks like a real holiday or uh, real Hollywood. Uh, production where um, it stars uh, Richard Hatch, if you remember him from Battlestar Galactica, um, oh, sure. and, yeah. and other, yeah, yeah. So he's on there. There's, there's a bunch of other guys. So um, you watch the movie uh, or you watch the the trailer for it, and you're like, oh my gosh, I got to see this. And it it looks like it's coming out later this calendar year. So I'm excited. Oh, that's great. Okay. 
So I've got some follow-up on uh, that Microsoft case that we were talking about uh, in the last episode. Uh, this is where Microsoft had some data in Dublin, and the U.S. government had a warrant for that data, and they were uh, Microsoft was fighting it, saying that it was in another country, it's out of your jurisdiction. Um, and we brought up the notion of kind of overlapping jurisdictions and that being a, uh, an inhibitor to cloud adoption and things like that. Um, this So this is more of a correction than anything else. Um, it turns out that the court case that made this a problem, uh, the judge had actually decided that complying with the warrant wouldn't violate the EU data protections. Um, so that problem was actually already cleared uh, before we got to the point where we started having the conversation. So anyway, just wanted to clear that up, if, if that was more clear. <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. And then <clears throat> moving over to the news, uh, you're all excited about uh, uh, GSA and, and AT&F. So what's, what's all that about? Yeah, sure. So, uh, so there's actually three pieces of news over the period of about a week and a half. Um, so, you know, uh, you got the 18F group, which we've talked about on the show before. Um, this is a group mm-hmm. of uh, kind of young. Uh, well, actually, not all of them are young, so that's not necessarily fair. But uh, young, at, young at heart, young at heart, uh, mm-hmm. developers, designers uh, working for the GSA on this kind of like special A team or like Tiger team. Um, that is developing open source software uh, for the GSA, and in some cases mm-hmm. helping you know helping elements within GSA uh, use more modern technologies like Node.js and Ruby and stuff like that. Also acquainting them with kind of modern development practices like Agile and DevOps or whatever. Um, so 18F uh, released the open source policy um, of theirs, and it's uh, it's amazing. It's kind of like the open source policy that we've uh, that we've always asked for. Um, so not only does it say that you can use open source software which was already the case, as we know. Um, But they also said that they are going to be developing everything in the open. Uh, So you can go to 18F's uh, GitHub account, and you can see all the projects that they're working on, all their issues are out there in public, all the pull requests, everything. It's all up there. Um, And that includes... Uh, policy, the open source policy itself, as well as documentation tutorials. Um, They've even got like a playbook or like a kit for building your own set of open source policies and procedures. Um, Pretty, pretty cool. So that happened on one day. And then like the very next day, the GSA surprised me. um, And the GSA CIO, Sonny Hashimi, announced that he is putting out an open source policy for the GSA. And it is basically exactly what the 18F policy is. It says that they're going to be open source, not just that they're going to use open source, but they're saying that they're going to prefer open source software. Um, they're going to, you know, try to basically try and adopt a lot of the principles of uh, 18F. Um, really kind of a remarkable announcement. And then the third thing is I was still reeling from that. Uh, the U.S. Digital Service was announced out of OMB. So the White House now has its own version of 18F. Um, yeah. and when they, and alongside that, they announced, uh, not just the formation of the group, which is going to be headed by Mikey Dickerson, um, who mm-hmm. was on the, uh, trauma team of uh, healthcare.gov. He was the, he was the guy from Google that they sent in, uh, to, to go fix the thing. Um, and, uh, so with Mikey in place, they've also got, uh, a playbook, uh, which is this like super readable set of kind of guidelines or suggestions on how to properly run an IT project, um, mm-hmm. especially tailored towards like mobile and kind of web kind of front end, like citizen facing stuff. Um, and then the third thing, which is kind of a, that just is a very complete thing. It just kind of all fill out of this guy at once. You've got the U S digital service, the playbook, and then the tech far, uh, which is a 
kind of interpretation document uh, showing folks how they can do agile development and agile procurement using the existing FAR rules. Um, okay. So anyway, so, that, that was, it was a busy two weeks for me anyway. <laughs> yeah. So are, are these, so it sounds to me like there are independent things going on, but with some shared heritage or how, how is, are any of these efforts shared at all? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so 18F is inside GSA. Um, right. so, so that's how those two are related. Um, and, uh, the U S digital service, both the U S digital service and 18F are both in, kind of inspired by the government digital service up in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. so, and in fact, there's some interest. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I'll explain this. So the government digital service famously took the gov.uk website and turned it from like an abomination into one of the most useful government websites you've ever seen. Um, and they yeah. did it using open source and kind of agile practices and all the stuff you're supposed to do. Um, so the GDS is actually basically owned and operated by the prime minister, right? It's actually the cabinet office is, um, is where they live. Uh, so it's a little bit like running it inside the white house in our case, mm -hmm. right? So if there were actually, if there was an equivalent group of the GDS, um, in the U S it would be the U S digital service, um, which is inside OMB. So it's basically inside the white house. Um, 18 F, uh, is not part of the administrator is not part of the, uh, the white house. So it's not like a political office cause it's inside right. GSA. Um, right. so it'll be, it's So it's kind of interesting. It's too, two kind of different bureaucratic homes for very, very similar work. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. So how would, how would one agency use one compared to another or how would, how would, you know, how would, how would people approach them from different angles and take advantage of what's being offered there? Yeah. Good. Yeah. That's a good question. So I think, and, and I think we're still trying to figure that out, right? So 18F because it lives inside GSA is really, focused on kind of GSA's problems. Um, yeah. but that, but they're open source and they're all, and they are very committed to collaboration. So they actually, you know, I know they're working on, for instance, they're working on like FOIA tools. Um, and so, uh, that f developing an open source FOIA tool kind of necessarily means that you're going to be collaborating with other agencies to do the work. So I think that's, they'll kind of, they'll work with other agencies in to the extent that it kind of, you know, improves the GSA mission. Right. Um, yeah. OMB though, houses the digital service and those guys basically can stick their fingers in any pie they want. Um, and so mm -hmm. I think we're going to see, uh, I'm sensing that the digital service is going to be kind of a much more kind of interventionist, um, kind of freelance consultant going like across many different agencies, um, you know, teaching them the tools and teaching them the, the processes and policies. Um, so digital service will probably be a little bit more, uh, conspicuous, let's say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's my guess. Okay. Yeah. And and you you so this got you all wound up while while you were uh, uh, not sleeping and and you <laughs> use that as an opportunity to write a bunch of blog posts about this and <laughs> yeah. you were uh, quoted in the press right so if, uh, and and we link to that uh, all of them in the show notes but any highlights from the blog post beyond what you were saying here? Yeah, you know what's funny is I thought the. So there's, there's two things, two kind of big topics that I latched onto. Like one is what it means to have an open source first policy. And, you know, this is something that I've kind of been agitating for, for years. And, uh, it's really exciting. And it also has me really worried, um, uh, about, cause I'm, what I'm worried about is kind of, uh, an irrational exuberance for open source, right. And people going out and just yes. 
grabbing any crappy open source project off the street and starting to use it. Um, in some cases, that works great. In other cases, it's like very dangerous and it takes a while to get the kind of skills and talent to understand how to work with stuff like this. Um, and I don't want open source to get a bad name. So uh, anyway, I th- that's kind of, you know, I've been doing this for eight years. Um, and so that's where I was devoting a lot of energy. I had a blog post all kind of, I've been working on it for months and kind of crafting the wording on it and all the rest of it. Uh, in fact, I, uh, as we're recording this, I still haven't published it. It's going to go out on, uh, on Thursday morning uh, in a couple days. Mm. Um, meanwhile, the U S digital service gets announced and I whip out like a f- open-ended, like, I think it was like a 600 word, uh, uh, kind of immediate reaction to it. Um, I literally wrote it in like less than an hour and that has been, and that suddenly like took off and a bunch of people are like, there it was quoted in an article on tech president and I got, you know, these press interviews over it. Um, but it's just kind of ironic, like, you know, compare and contrast like weeks of handcrafting, uh, with this like thing I dashed out in an hour, uh, which is yeah. like way more popular. It's just, you know, you never know how this <laughs> stuff is going to work out, but, um, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, I think if I were to sum up the whole thing, I'd say, like, first of all, I'm really excited about the prospect of the government getting serious about making the changes necessary um, to do stuff like run an open source project, um, to Mm -hmm. do agile development and things like that. I think I'm really excited about that. Um, I also think that there are, um, and I wrote about this in the U.S. Digital Service piece, I mean, there's a bunch of unanswered questions which are actually really important. a lot of the a lot of these announcements have been around the implementation, kind of what it is that they're going to do, um, or and how they're going to do it. Um, but there's almost nothing has been written about why they should do it in a particular way, um, or how are we going to evaluate these things? Like, what does success look like for the U.S. Digital Service? Um, and we still don't know the answer to that. Um, and I think those are like really not just important, but also interesting questions to answer. Um, so, you know, you fund 20 smart tech guys and let them loose inside the federal government. How do you know if that's working? Like, how do you know, is it making things worse? Is it making things better? Um, uh, what are they optimizing for, right? Are they just there to reduce costs or are they there to just insert technology? Anyway, you get the idea. Um, so I'm really excited to see how all this unfolds. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Yep. And, and you could, you saw another article in the economist about, uh, transparency, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, it was at the same, as all these announcements are coming out, I also found this article uh, in the economist about, uh, somebody went back and studied the notes from the federal reserve, uh, the federal reserve board of governors meetings. Right. Um, and they've always kept minutes of the meetings. Um, but there was a moment when they announced that they were going to start publishing the minutes to the meetings. Um, and this guy did some kind of like lexical analysis of what the conversations were like before they knew and what the conversations were like after they knew. Um, and sure enough, guess what happened? Uh, people spent after once people knew that the minutes were going to get published, it completely changed their behavior. Um, they started spending, uh, they were, they became a lot more, uh, reserved. Um, they they were less likely to make controversial statements. Um, they were, it just, it just generally changed the behavior and not always for the best. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, I thought that was interesting, especially in the context of these organizations, which are kind of designed to kind of improve transparency uh, in the bureaucracy. And I I think it's important not to lose sight of the fact that sometimes transparency is a good thing. Um, Sometimes uh, is not a good thing. Sometimes uh, sometimes transparency uh, can actually, you know, discourage vibrant debate. Uh, Yes. Yeah. It's sort of like the panopticon or or uh, Mm -hmm. and, and these guys, too. You know, everybody listens to every word they say and they make the markets will 
wax and wane uh, based upon what they say. And I'm sure they're they're parsing their words more and they're not um, – <clears throat> they may even be, um, instead of just conservative, maybe more ambiguous to be noncommittal mm-hmm. a- about things. Yeah, and that's and and that could like seriously affect their ability to perform like critical thinking and kind of decision making tasks, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Like, how do you how do you get to consensus when everyone is uh, speaking in the like blandest, most kind of politically neutral way possible? Um, That's that's hard. That's got to affect how an order how a team runs, right? Um, Even whether it's you know the Federal Reserve Board of Governors or you know a bunch of developers, it's it's the same problem. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, yeah, I saw something that would, uh, that I saw this and I'm like, man, I, Gunnar has to see this is, um, there is a slash dot article where I guess they interviewed, um, uh, Oliver or Olivier block, uh, who is from, uh, uh, Microsoft's open source, not even, he doesn't work <laughs> for Microsoft, but from, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, you okay? <laughs> yeah, it's all right. I got so yeah, it really wasn't uh, Microsoft as an open. It's a separate company, right? Um, and and so, um, yeah, he yeah, was gotta talking. Qu- you got to about... quarantine that stuff. You got to don't let it infect the rest of the company. You got to keep all that open source stuff in a separate. Yeah, so you yeah. could you could cut it off and, and, <laughs> and right. cauterize it. Yeah, cauterize <laughs> the wound. Um, yeah, but it's like I. I you and I were talking before the show that this guy has to have the loneliest job on the planet, right? Yeah, I know. With just totally no friends. Um, you know, the Microsoft guys obviously aren't going to cozy up to him uh, too much, I don't think. Uh, mm-hmm. And then definitely the open source community is going to look at him with a... Uh, they're definitely going to give him the hairy eyeball. Um, mm-hmm. So I would, he's kind of like a man, with no, a man without a country, it seems like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Although actually, you know, but you know what? Good for Microsoft. Um, they, you know, obviously they were kind of the anti-open source company for a very, very long time. But you do have to give credit where credit is due. I mean, they have realized that all of development is basically moved into the open source world. Um, all the most interesting stuff is happening in open source, and they obviously realize that, and they realize that they have to figure out a way to work with open source projects. And so they, you know, even if they did create a, a quarantine company to go do that work. Good for them um, yep. for uh, for kind of catching up to everybody else. Uh, we welcome them to the cause. How about that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Patch is welcome. Patch is yep. welcome. Yeah, and and uh, I know you saw this in the news too that the Rackspace they bowed out of being a uh, out of the infrastructure as a service market. Yeah, that's crazy, right? Um, especially after spending all that money trying to convince people they were a cloud company. I mean, they had wrapped it seemed like every airport in the country with these, you know, great big open cloud announcements and like billboards on the 405 and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. and then they just dropped it like a bad habit. Uh, yeah. Get amazing. Um, that, I don't know. What do you think they, you know, the, the, I, I think everybody knew there was going to be, you know, a series of shakeouts in cloud, but I'm surprised that Rackspace was, was one of the ones that, that bowed out uh, because they had invested so much, you know, between OpenStack and all the rest of it. I mean, in a lot of ways, they kind of like created the, they created the market for these uh, kind of second tier cloud providers, right? By making mm-hmm. the software available for, for free. And, um, and now they're, they're leaving. I mean, I, it, 
you know, we talk about lock-in a lot. Um, and, you know, a lot of people think, you know, cloud makes lock-in irrelevant or, you know, Adrian Cocroft keeps talking about like, who cares if you're locked in if the price keeps going down, right? Um, yeah. But you know when the when the when the number of providers goes down, um, I'm not a you know I don't have a PhD in economics or anything, but I do know that when you have fewer people to buy from, the price tends to go up, right? Um, yeah. And so if all we're left with now is Microsoft and uh, Google and Amazon, um, with Amazon being like you know 80, 90 percent of the market or whatever it is, um, you know that that doesn't bode well. Uh, no. uh, it makes me it makes me extra double worried knowing full well that somebody who's already invested hundreds of millions of dollars in being a cloud company can't pull it off. Um, you know, it basically seems like the likelihood of somebody stepping in and becoming a top tier player is like vanishingly small at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess one of the big reasons why Rackspace went away is that, you know, with all those price cuts and everything, you know, Rackspace didn't make their brand around being the cheapest provider. It, it was, you know, fanatical support and that mm -hmm. support comes at a cost. And, um, and and they weren't willing to sacrifice quality of support for um, for lowering prices, uh, and so um, they decided to bow out of that. And but I wonder too that if it ends up being you know <clears throat> you know you, you talk about you know the prices dropping and all that stuff, it's almost like when you know they, they say last call and then the lights go up and how you know <laughs> like scary it is. You know it's like oh my gosh, <laughs> you know what what have I been doing all night? You know, right. um, but. I, I, it's just uh, like when you're when you're left with, uh, but you think about it too. If it's if it's Amazon, Google, and Microsoft that are left over, what about internationally? Of of uh, you know, are there other international challengers that could compete? Uh, unless they, you know, could they, with with the worrisome you know people worried about you know, uh, U.S.-based cloud companies and things like that, uh, can an international company compete with that type of scale? Yeah, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, um, you know, and I, mean, I, and I don't mean international, but just uh, like can a non, a non-U.S. company, um, you know, have yeah. that sort of scale and deep pockets and willingness to, you know, uh, to uh, play the long game. Yeah, well, and I know that in the EU, after you know the Snowden revelations, there was some talk of uh, banding together and funding uh, a competing cloud company um, that wouldn't be subject to U.S. law. Um, you know, like kind of like a kind of like they started Airbus um, yes. to compete against Boeing. Um, basically yeah. the same thing, you know, creating an Airbus for, for, for cloud. Um, I don't know where those plans are, but uh, the fact that it, you know, a bunch of not just one European government, but like a number of governments feel like they would have to band together and pool their money to compete against uh, Amazon specifically uh, seems a little scary, right? Um, but that's kind of the, the scale that they feel like would be required. Um, but uh yeah. Well, another interesting kind of angle on this is, like you say, Rackspace's reputation is founded on this kind of fanatical support. You know, it's a and it's a reputation they really deserve. Um, and I wonder though how much this, uh, you know, we're getting out of the infrastructure business um, is really true, right? Because now they're they're saying we're going to get out of IaaS and we're now going to be all about managed cloud. Um, yes. And I'm wondering what the meaningful differences are between the IaaS business and the managed cloud business. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure Rackspace is still going to take my money to host mm -hmm. servers for me. Um, right. And I'm pretty sure they're going to be able to provision those servers automatically. So um, what I, I, wonder, I, I understand the press release, but I wonder what it actually means in terms of um, how they're 
is this just a positioning thing or are they actually like changing their offerings? That's that, that part wasn't clear to me. Yeah. Yeah. It was somewhat vague and it, it sounded too like managed cloud means to me more like, uh, like a colo and I'll, I'll run say like, uh, you know, this roped off area is going to run open stack for customer X and mm-hmm. we'll manage that whole thing for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but it won't, but it won't be like the heavy duty, uh, crazy multi-tenancy sort of thing. But, but like you said right. too, if somebody wants to spin up a VM, you know, uh, would, would they, would, would they be able to do it by the hour? I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cause, cause one way to interpret this is also like uh, a way of them to position themselves away from being compared to Amazon. Right. Uh, right. Which there are, you know, they will always be compared unfavorably to Amazon because everybody compares unfavorably to Amazon. So this may be, uh, kind of half real and half PR way of them saying like, quit comparing us to Amazon. We're running a completely different business, quote unquote, managed cloud. Um, so, you know, uh, yes. evaluate us on our own merits, not against this like 800 pound gorilla. Right. Yeah. They want to be number one in the category that they are creating or they want to be in. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Yep. 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 Um, so what's going on, Aaron? Lauren's got uh, yeah. What's what's Lauren' calendar look like? <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. So she so uh, by uh, let's see, this weekend uh, she has that uh, juggling event that's coming up. Um, so we're gonna go backstage and and see uh, Charles Peachock and the Raspberry Pi and all that going off uh, with him doing his uh, event uh, at Kent, uh, Ohio. But then um, in uh, the beginning of September. Uh, she's actually presenting on this solution at the Akron Lug. So uh, uh, she went through her presentation with me last night, and I thought it was pretty good. So I'm excited. Right on. Well, that's yeah. Great. So she's going to talk about uh, not only the project, but like how do you manage expectations of you know of your client, and um, you know, and also um, the iterative process of you know you do a prototype, you show that to your client, and then it's like you get the thumbs up, and then you do another iteration, and, and you optimize the design, and then you converge on something that um, that you agree upon. So um, it, she did pretty good. That's great. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so let's see what what else is new. Oh, um, so Dave, we talked before about how great Docker is uh, and how mm-hmm. wonderful kind of container technology can be. And I know that like when I've talked to customers, you've heard the same thing is, you know, folks are asking kind of what the performance differences are between containers and, and virtualization, which was a surprise to me because if you understand how virtualization works and you understand how containers work, you know that containers are obviously going to be faster, um, uh, significantly faster in some cases than virtualization. Um, but I guess some people need proof and you found it, right? looks like IBM did, a did some tests. Yeah. And this, this thing, it's like, I'm, I'm like very sensitive when people use statistics to distort the truth. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not saying IBM did that. It was more like the register did it where it's like that it was total, (laughs) it was total clickbait. Where it's yeah. like you know Docker kicks uh, KVM's butt in IBM tests, and you know um, it was it was pretty crazy that um, that uh, you know that and and you look at the website and there's this graph and it's like KVM was like 50 percent and then where uh, Docker was like 100 percent and it's like oh my gosh it's the end of the world and everything and I went through and I looked at the IBM paper that was like 15 pages long. Um, and it was like, that was like one of like 10 charts where it was like KVM was actually neck and neck. 
Um, but but the reality is though too is like you were saying is that it was uh, you know depending upon what the workload is it it you don't have to choose Docker or containers or KVM you could actually do containers on top of KVM um, mm-hmm. and and in this particular instance again going back to the register article it was it was like I think it was Linpack or or some you know it was it was something where it was it totally fell down and. Um, and the other thing too was it. I guess it was the operating system used was Ubuntu 13.10 uh, or something like that, uh, that that they were using. So I don't know if they had the latest and greatest of 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 all things being equal or, or how things, but they were using that as as a baseline. So they weren't, you know, I don't know. It, it just sort of set me off. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I think the I think the takeaway is that performance. I don't know from my point of view choosing Docker or KVM based on performance seems like a bad idea. I mean, you want to, um, the differences between how you manage them is so great, uh, Mm -hmm. right now. Um, and kind of the workflow that goes around putting a KVM system together versus, uh, putting a set of Docker containers together. Um, those things are so wildly different that, um, you really want to, you almost want to be looking more at kind of the organizational performance required yes. to make those things work. Right. Um, right. and the actual like technical, like what is the overhead of running this thing versus that thing is like a really myopic way of looking at the problem. And um, especially if you look at the, from beginning to end and, and the life cycle maintenance and all the efficiencies mm-hmm. or inefficiencies of that workflow. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and so, you know, it's like, you know, virtualization and live migration or, or whatever, depending upon what your workload is, um, you know, traditional virtualization still has its place. And, and again, it's like, there's no reason why you have to choose one or the other. You can do both. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, I, so I'm, I'm tinkering with this idea. Um, and I'd love to hear what you think about it is, uh, and the, this, this idea, it's more of like an aphorism, I guess, but like, um, there are some technologies that, you're not going to be able to use properly unless you change your org chart. Um, and I have a feeling that Docker may be one of those technologies, right? Um, mm-hmm. KVM was one of those, right? Uh, you know, virtualization changed how data centers operate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it changed, you know, it used to be, you know, there's like rackers and stackers who did the configurations and sysadmins. I mean, the task of a sysadmin now is very different um, in a lot of ways with virtualization than it was without. Um, and I think Docker is another one of those technologies which is disruptive enough that you're gonna need like new job descriptions, right? Because um, it uh, it kind of changes your relationship to the platform that you're working on. Um, right. Does, does that make sense? So I, th- so I think like, you know, people talk about innovation or disruption or, or whatever it is. And um, so, so my new benchmark for that is, do I have to change my org chart? If I have to change mm-hmm. my org chart, you are correct. It is a disruptive technology. Yeah, and and a lot of people may not want it. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, right. it's exactly. it's yeah. you know, I I know, I'm I'm sure you've run into a lot of customers too that it's like, I don't care if this is ten percent faster, um, it's disrupts my the way we do things in our workflow, and it's more cost effective for us to keep doing the way we're doing things the old efficient way. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Totally. Exactly right. Um, so on the other hand, you know, some upgrades or, you know, of two technology are completely non-disruptive and you can, you know, are basically frictionless, which is my segue to the RHEL 6.6 beta. See how I did that? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So what, yeah. what, what, are the head, what are the headlines on, uh, on the new uh, RHEL 6.6? Well, to get uh, the biggest thing for me is it, it includes the SCAP security guide. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Sean Wells, that's 20 bucks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So we're finally, you know, we've talked about SCAP, uh, you know, for, you know, over a year now. Um, the fact that it is actually shipping in rel six and in rel seven is, is just wonderful. I'm really excited about it. And it's also not just the, uh, it's not, you know, it's not just like dropping SSG on there. I mean, they've actually got, um, the STIG guidance is in there, right? The mm-hmm. USGCV guidance is in there. Um, so hopefully this will make it a lot easier for folks to meet the requirements of like the dis SRG and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm excited about it. Yeah. Like, like think about the, the journey that, that those guys went through where it went from a Fedora project to getting it into Apple. Um, and then from Apple into rel and, and that was huge for, uh, you know, because we have a lot of customers that, um, they can only have RPMs that are signed by a commercial vendor. And, mm-hmm. and with the Apple RPMs being signed by the Fedora project, even though it ran on top of RHEL, um, it was community supported and, and considered uh, not allowable. And mm-hmm. so now by having it right, you know, baked into the, the installation ISO, um, it's, it's there for them. So that's, that's really exciting. Yeah. And also I'm excited about getting the SCAP security guide in the hands of so many new people who would otherwise not have contact with it. Right. Cause it's not something you would like necessarily seek out if you didn't know that it existed. Um, mm-hmm. but now that we're shipping it in the, in the platform, I'm really excited about, uh, people coming up with, you know, their own, uh, their own benchmarks for it. Um, mm-hmm. adding to it, doing the bug fixes. I mean, it's going to get a much broader audience now, um, which, um, uh, which I'm pumped about. So, uh, congratulations to everybody on the SCAP security guide team. Nice work, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And then thinking about, so probably what, by the time Raul seven, six comes around, we'll have the VPAT for it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So folks who don't know what a VPAT is, um, so it's section 508 of the, um, I think it's of the American disabilities act, um, says that, uh, software needs to accommodate people with disabilities. Um, and usually that means, you know, that's especially uh, a problem for, uh, the visually impaired. Um, so if you're blind or can't see very well, um, you know, GUI interfaces are a real problem. Um, and, uh, for government agencies, uh, they have a requirement to be able to, like, you, you want to be able to hire, uh, qualified staff who happen to be, you know, visually disabled in some way. Um, and so, uh, we have these rules called section 508, which says, you know, uh, the software can actually be, you know, handled or managed on a, uh, braille reader, for instance. Um, and so the VPAT, uh, is a little kind of certification document or an attestation document that says, um, this, so we've reviewed the software and it works just fine on, uh, on braille devices, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, it's, this is obviously like, this is a difficult thing for a software vendor to handle often, um, to, you know, to get the VPAT out on time. Cause you gotta, you know, bring in a third party lab and have them do the reviews and then you do your bug fixes. And I mean, it's in a lot of ways, it's, it's complicated in the same way that like a common criteria certification is complicated. It just happens to be focused on the user experience rather than kind of the, the guts of the software. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, our, our huge innovation, and I'm really, really proud of the team for being able to do this is we actually got the VPAT out during, you know, at the GA of rail seven, um, which is wonderful. So folks don't have to wait months and months and months before they get the VPAT. The VPAT is now available almost on like almost at GA it was available. Um, so again, great work for everybody on the team that got that together. Yeah. uh, This just goes back to, I remember when rail five came out and rail six came out, we always had to go back and 
you know, buy donuts and beer and, and, and annoy people and pester people <laughs> until they got this stuff done. And yeah, this yeah. is like, we didn't have to annoy anybody and it's, we need to come up with a new list of things to complain about, I guess. But uh, Yeah. Dave, we should actually, now that we're talking about, it, we should do a show on the 10 commandments document. I yes. feel like that might be, that might be kind of, that might be a good idea. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll we'll leave that as a teaser, and we'll we'll maybe maybe in some one of the later episodes we'll we'll devote an hour to going through our Ten Commandments document, which which we use internally to deal with this kind of stuff. Um, yes. All right. Cool. Uh, let's see. And then uh, JBoss application platform six three also GA right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's out. Yeah. Yep. So congratulations to the JBoss team on another successful release. Uh, the also, on the JBoss team got some very good news. I, I can't remember whether we talked about it on the show before, but I'm going to mention it again because it was so cool. Uh, so, Dave, you know about our rules management system, right? JBoss Yeah, BRMS. BRMS. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of those products that actually surprised us with how many people like it. Um, <laughs> uh, it really is kind of one of the most popular JBoss products um, because it's able to solve all kinds of problems around, you know, workflow, uh, the, you know, managing rules engines and so on. Okay. Um, Forrester did a study of all the rules engines available on the market and decided that there were two worth looking at. Dave, can you guess which two those were? Uh, ours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And IBM. You got it. You got it. That's yeah. exactly right. Um, and the most fun part about this is, uh, they say these are the only two rules engines worth looking at. And, uh, the JBoss BRMS system is like, in some cases, like an order of magnitude less money um, than IBM. Like, you can take the IBM price and like take digits off the right hand side, um, and that's how much it costs to do the same thing on BRMS. Uh, so, uh, so we're very excited about this. We think everybody should know about it. Um, uh, and uh, nice work, BRMS team. Uh, you guys put out a genuinely great product. Um, it's nice. always nice to be able to, always nice to be able to talk about a success like that. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. Uh, oh, another product uh, that we're excited about is OpenShift, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and you, did you see that uh, OpenShift's now available at uh, University of North Carolina? Yeah, that's pretty cool. I, that, that's out on their uh, uh, UNC website, so it'll be available to, uh, I guess, faculty and staff and students and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and they're doing it for the same reason that a lot of other companies do it is, uh, they want to make it easier for folks to, uh, to develop software. Um, mm-hmm. so instead of provisioning them VMs and opening themselves up to kind of security problems and stuff like that, they decided to, uh, install a platform as a service and make it easy for faculty, staff, students to, uh, uh, to build their own uh, web apps. And so, uh, there you go. That's OpenShift. Yeah. Um, so, and I do want to call out NC state. Um, so for years, Red Hat was actually housed on NC state's campus. Uh, uh, NC state, we have a ton of NC state alumni at Red Hat. Um, and I think it is shameful that NC state let UNC beat them to the open shift punch. Yep. I'm throwing down that. I'm going to, I'm going to throw down that gauntlet. Um, yep. so NC, NC state, you have to answer for this. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, all right. What else we got here? Oh, I, so I've heard this before, but maybe you can explain this to me. I, I, there is a copy of the U.S. Constitution installed on every Apple computer. Is that mm-hmm. true? Yeah. That's not a not a euphemism. That's like, like literally, it's installed in the. It's for real. So you have it. So I, I wouldn't so, know this firsthand because uh, I don't <laughs> have one. Um, but it, and it's like I saw this and I'm like. Wait a minute. So it's like Steve, the ghost of Steve Jobs is like, uh, no, we have to, you know, 
But the, you know, you look at the design document is, is, is a copy of the constitution installed. What do you mean it's not installed? We got to get that installed. And I, and I was thinking, <laughs> how would, you know, it's like, how, how did that, you know, is there, a, what meeting did that come up at where it's like, oh yeah, we need, we can't ship until we get the constitution installed on every, uh, uh, every uh, Mac that's out there. And, and, <laughs> but once I read the article, I found out that, oh, it, it actually kind of makes sense, I guess, where um, the, uh, the dictionary app inside the applications folder um, mm -hmm. on on the Macs. Uh, not only does it have like a dictionary and stuff like that, it has other reference material inside of there. And one of the reference materials that is there is uh, um, the uh, the U.S. Constitution. Huh. Is mm -hmm. it, is that the only is that the only item they've got in there, or is nope? Is nope. there other there's like the history of the English language, uh, the list of 50 states in every capital. And one of the interesting things that it has a list of every pre president of the United States from George Washington to George W. Bush. Huh. Okay. Hold on a second. So, okay. You're talking probably need an update there. <laughs> okay. I'm they, they, that's how they get you. They make you buy the update. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm going to open this up here. I'm looking. Oh yeah. Yeah. You got you yeah. got the Declaration of Independence in there. Yeah, this is mm -hmm. uh man, this is surprised. I wonder if they could use this for, you know, some kind of like Bayesian filtering, or I mean, I wonder if they use those documents as like a corpus for like to, uh, speech recognition or something like that. Um, hmm. I, maybe I doubt it, but yeah, there's Declaration of Independence, uh, standard weights and measures with metric equivalents, um, or or maybe it's for like the apple's heritage of being prevalent in schools and needing yeah, that sure. stuff for school kids i tell you i think this is adorable because uh, this is a little bit like you know they get those like pocket books um uh, not you know two words pocket books um especially in like elementary school you would get them mm -hmm. like i would go to like scholastic books and like order a bunch of you know whatever copies of phantom toll booth or something and they would like include a free book in with it and it would be like you know uh, like a pocket, like some kind of like pocket encyclopedia or like an almanac. Um, mm -hmm. that's exactly what this is. Every Mac has an almanac in it. That's great. Nice. Nice. All right. Dave. We need, we need, uh, we need to get that in RHEL. We do. Yeah, that's right. We should get that in RHEL. That's something we could hunt the, the product managers about. That's that <laughs> That'll be the 11th commandment. Uh, yep. you know, a, co yeah, we, a complete copy of Wikipedia installed <laughs> yep. in the U S constitution. And right. mm -hmm. <laughs> right. it's a government requirement that all, all, all computers have to have the constitution on it. <laughs> Just in case. Yeah. Um, yeah. You never know. Cool. All right, Dave, uh, you need to get back in bed. Uh, I need to take a nap. Uh, so let's, uh, you need to put Soren to bed. Yeah. I, yeah. Can you hear him? I need to put, yeah, I definitely need to put him to bed. All mm -hmm. right. It, Dave, if, uh, if folks want to learn more, uh, about the almanac hidden inside the apples, if they want to uh, read the articles, um, mm -hmm. about 18 F and the U S digital service, my, my trenchant commentary, uh, mm -hmm. about, uh, about all this stuff, or maybe they just want more information about Lauren's next uh, public appearance. Uh, where, where do they go for that? Yeah, they need to go to dgshow.org. So D is in Dave, G is in Gunner, show.org. All right, great. Uh, well, Dave, I'll see you next week. Yep. Bye, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.